fortunate to have uh, uh, Barbara Stafford, who has, who has kindly, uh, kindly agreed to um, somehow uh, summarize, or wrap up, or otherwise perform a, uh, a jig of some sort for us to, uh, to, uh, to conclude, uh, conclude the day. Are you, are you all set? Are you ready for your uh, your That's your, rather your, a question. <laughs> <laughs> the time has come. With Gray, who of course gave us an enormously uh, dense talk, but from that, as I said, I'm not going to be nuggetory. Otherwise, we'll, uh, it will be like a dookie theater when we change the clothes uh, and emerge uh, tomorrow afternoon. So let me begin um, in a nuggetory fashion. And um, I want to take as my point of departure um, or the thing that I want to hang on to is what it seems to be his major question, question that uh, he also linked up to other contemporary philosophers. How does one escape correlationism? How does one escape um, uh, that as a problem? Uh, that is where there is a subject, there is always an object, this kind of um, intrinsic connectedness. I also want to maybe obliquely mention this very interesting reading of occasionalism. I myself uh, didn't know. I know my branche uh, and Paul Royal, but I, didn't, uh, I did not know about the Islamic um, uh, connection. I think that's quite interesting for contemporary analytic philosophers like Galen Strauss, and actually Galen Strauss talks about consciousness as something episodic. What is that but a kind of occasionalism if one really thinks about it? Uh, but I also want to talk about the occasional figure, something that kind of comes and goes depending on how it is stitched together. Uh, from Steve, Steve also gave us um, many, many, many uh, ways of thinking about uh, our problem of an object-oriented uh, ontology, uh, but particularly uh, I want to foreground his rereading of Whitehead, uh, and particularly uh, the way in which uh, I would say um, uh, Whitehead is quite prescient, again, of I think a certain strand of contemporary cognitivism, um, where when Whitehead speaks about lures to feeling and enticing to attention, I mean, in a way, Ian gets at that at the end uh, of our program as well when he talks about wonder as a kind of darkening, because what is darkening or what is wonder uh, but the obscuring of all those qualities that you are not making salient, um, uh, their saliency, the saliency of a particular object property is what in a way makes it wondrous, the fact that it leaps out literally leaps out of the dark into light. And of course, again, one can think of many um, uh, things relating to contemporary neuroscience in terms of perception uh, that really speak to that aspectual um, uh, uh, side of perception. So uh, for Steve, um, uh, uh, that things somehow proposition, well, they proposition us um, uh, through their saliency. And the more salient they are, here I can Darwinism, something like Gerald Edelman, um, because of reentry, uh, the secondary repertoire, they become increasingly uh, more salient. 
um, they either fall into absolute ordinariness, you don't view them at all, or um, unless you go to the extreme direction, uh, um, they, um, if you extreme them, uh, then uh, they again enter the world of wonder. So uh, that's the moment, Steve, in your very rich talk that I, I want to seize. Uh, and um, Levi, I want to take from you, and this is really the reason I decided to do this, uh, when I asked you the question, your point about objects uh, being heterogeneous, and particularly their being is composed of heterogeneous objects, um, and also your very interesting language, uh, which I want to sort of perhaps ritual about the rebellion against unity in order to retrieve a new unity in a way that each um, uh, decomposition um, is in a way the crafting of a new object. And here there's another thread that it seems to me runs through all of your papers, uh, which is actually a very old one as well. Uh, it's about the make-believe figure. Uh, it's about uh, what Hobbes called the artificial person, not somebody that you walk in from kind of a natural realism, you walk in the door, you recognize someone, um, you recognize their features, but rather the making of something. And um, this brings me then to my tiny little contribution, uh, which has to do, uh, it seems to me, if one looks at the history of art, uh, there is what would a visual mariology look like? These figures, uh, uh, these objects, uh, thinking about uh, Daniel Dennett, they're sort of third person objects. I mean, there's no ego in them, there's no central consciousness. Uh, what they are is precisely an assemblage uh, of items that retain their discreteness, they retain their separateness. And they are, what is done to them? They are put into contiguity. And here I want to, I actually do this in my, for anybody who's interested in my echo objects, I do it also in my new book, but I'm very interested in formats, particularly not so much content or how content accrues to certain kind of formatting or how certain kinds of formats uh, speak to certain content. What's interesting about this as a visual structure uh, is that it operates um, on the logic of contiguity. You put things like intarsia, like floor paving, uh, like cake baking. You know, you put an egg here, you put a little thing here, but it's not mixed. This is really, really important. Or rather, let me say, it's not blended. It's interesting, if you think about what visual formats endure, what formats have endured, I know they're permutated, but what are the fundaments? What are the fundamental formats that endure? Two kinds of formats for compound figures. That's really our topic. How do you compound? How do you make more? How do you make many out of a lot of ones? Let's put it ontologically. One way is this way. That is, you simply lay it side by side in a flat universe like a mosaic. This is also, I mean, you might at first blush say, hey, this doesn't look like a floor pavement, but it does. It 
functions. My engineers will understand it structurally. It's built the same way. You lay disparate things side by side. You do not blend them. And uh, you create, therefore, you craft a make-belief figure that then uh, acquires a reality. In this case, Philosophia. This is from Ripa's uh, uh, composite, uh, book of composite emblems. Um, and this is philosophy. This is, a, uh, this is not a figure that would walk through the door, at least not this afternoon. And uh, it is a figure that is a, a, an artificial person. It is a figure whose strangeness makes it salient. It's strange. It's weird. And I have some weird ones to show you. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, forgive me, this is my map is so ancient. I was fortunate, yes, you can find it in blazons, heraldic blazons. Here, Pantur, I mean, this is kind of a weirdy, isn't it? I mean, what in the hell are we doing? <laughs> uh, Pantur, this is actually from a French collection of emblems. And you notice it is a figure where maybe it's a character. I want to get some of these words on the page. Um, that is a construct. It is wholly uh, an artificial person that is made up of craft aptitudes. In other words, uh, it is mute. Painting is about the eyes. It's not about talking. Uh, it is um, also involves certain skill sets, drawing especially. You see that with the easel. Um, uh, painting also has the sun. I mean, it, it's an enigma at the same time, talking about mystery, which also came up um, uh, uh, within our speakers. So that it is this, um, this kind of figure um, that is weird. Uh, I'll use Ian's term. Uh, it's a kind of alloy <coughs> poetics um, at, uh, at one level. Only I want to say kind of uh, alloy um, uh, aesthetics. And it is, entices our attention. There is something about the strangeness here um, that demands, um, that demands um, um, uh, attention. So this kind of intarsis style, uh, I would propose, is one aspect of visual mariology. I'm going to bring in Pyrenees in and show that you can recognize it in very different formats, that the underlying format is still the same format. And I want to bring it in because um, this is from Pyrenees' Carrere, uh, where he has, as you see, snatches of text uh, of contemporary explanation. He has Roman writing, that is kind of petroglyphs. Um, he has his own views of the antiquities of ancient and modern Rome. And each one retains its discreteness. It's like a, almost a grid format, but again, uh, operating according to this principle of continuity, of stitching things visibly together with rough sutures, kind of coarse mosaic. But what's interesting is, too, is that Piranese uses his style in his theoretical writing, the Pariere, where he, he disputes uh, that the symbol belongs to a kind of primal knowledge that the ancient uh, Egyptians had. And he says, no, an object is actually made from discrete parts, and meaning and symbol comes later. It accrues. And I think that's a theme 
uh, that is also emerged. Out of praxis, out of the work of the hand comes that. I think I'm, I could go many, many ways. Uh, hang on, there's just one other thing maybe that I'd like to show you, and then I'll go to my second part. Um, oh God, please help me because I can't get back. I need the whole, uh, oh yes, I was going to show you. I mean, you go back to Roman paving, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking, this is so fancy. My, uh, what I need, what I need is, uh, can you get the back of my slide table view? Here's another, I mean, this is also from La Riva. Um, but what I want to show you um, in the logic, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and then can I just, how do I, I just should be able to double click on it. I mean, just to show you, and I want to contrast it. Let's take it from something from ZKM, from Karlsruhe, rather brilliant uh, contemporary piece. Uh, I want to show you that there's a totally different logic and that still needs to be, and as opposed to the, since the other word that was frequently used, but I want to point out that it operates on an extremely different logic and has a very different uh, aesthetic. It's the logic of entanglement. Uh, if you say that the way in which discrete parts can still retain their discreteness, their separateness, one way is obviously the side-by-side -side intarsia uh, approach. But the other is precisely this, which goes from very, very old to new media. Uh, it's the logic of entanglement. It comes from the universe of drapery, not from floor tiling, not from mosaics, not from hard bits and pieces, but it comes from the nomad's tent, from drapery, from textiles, from threads, from skeins that interweave, but it also is, it retains its um, discrete, linear, and chromatic qualities. So these, I think, are two, I want to just throw them out here as two propositions for the ways in which it seems to me um, what uh, the, the topic of, um, uh, of this new object ontology perhaps also um, can be, as a French say, précisé by considering it within, uh, it seems to me, these illuminating formats. I want to conclude now by turning to something entirely different. And I want to cite uh, the work of a person I think might be pertinent to our investigations that we haven't. And that, I'm not a Freudian, uh, but this is a very unusual Freudian, Christopher Bolas, the work of Christopher Bolas. Uh, I'm, um, I'm going to cite some works, uh, The Mystery of Things, The Evocative Object World, uh, the shadow of the object, the psychoanalysis of the unthought known, um, and very interestingly, uh, being a character in a way, the question I raised uh, with endless. And the reason I think he might be pertinent for the considerations that we've got on the page uh, is because he asks the question, how does any subject, now you're not going to like that he still uses the word subject, but bear with me. How does a subject elaborate herself through the use of evocative objects? And what he means by evocative objects are things, this is what I think is quite wonderful, in other words, associative objects that evoke aspects of ourselves 
which might have gone unexpressed otherwise. In other words, bringing things out in us that would otherwise never have been expressed. He also is rather anti, I'm a Jungian, so let me just say this. He, I find him interestingly arguing against Freud, uh, because you know, Freud always talks about intersubjectivity as entailing um, making unconscious communication conscious. But what Boyas says, intersubjectivity entails unconscious communication between any entities in the world. In other words, rather closer uh, to Graham's uh, uh, point of view this morning. Um, and also realizing that that communication is dense and polysemous. The other thing that he says, I'm going to do three things from Bolas. The other thing that he says is that the unconscious, which he redefines, and it's not the Freudian unconscious, it seems to me it's more what uh, this object-oriented ontology is in a way trying to get at. The unconscious receives impressions sponsored by the object world, which when we're receptive enough, again offers us new data uh, of existence, which enlarges who we are. In the way that I could argue those emblematic figures enlarge by incorporating this alien world, again using Ian's term, it enlarges whatever the edges or margins of the figure are to the point where you've got a new object. You've got something new uh, that emerges uh, from that. Um, and he says this happens when previously dormant aspects of ourselves come to life through this unexpected encounter, through this unexpected presentation of something uh, that evokes a kind of nexus of experiences. I can't go into it. It's really quite complicated, but it gives you the gist, gist of it. Um, and since we also talked about rebelling, uh, about destruction, um, he has this beautiful phrase that the strain and the joy of cracking up, and again, think of my emblematic figures, each one of those figures actually, let me see if I can go to something else, let me take a grotesque. I'll just take a grotesque, which also, this alludes to the, uh, uh, the point I made about uh, 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 the gro grotesque, although this is a rather calm one, it's not manipian. Um, but you can see that um, while each one of these bits and pieces actually belong to pre-existing holes, uh, they nonetheless, in the crack-up, um, um, uh, something else becomes elaborated, something new. And he relates it to this, this very difficult thing of our, this concept of our self. Um, and he says that it elaborates, this, the crack-up leads to the elaboration of our unthought self. Uh, when we crack up the logic <coughs> of normal sequence, uh, that is conscious thought, um, this other um, uh, comes into being. And the final, I promise, the final quotation from him, and again, non-Freudian, non-Freudian, uh, is that what is interesting 
interesting about this sort of communication that goes on between us and the world, whatever us is, and us is also looking like an emblem, as Galen Strawson would say, because we're episodic. We react to this, we react to that. We're, we're, uh, where is consciousness at any particular moment? Um, and it's at you know, the periphery. It's whatever entity uh, uh, becomes salient and impinges, and at that instant uh, becomes um, involved, um, inlaid uh, with our um, inner life. Bolas says, what interests him is not Freud's unconscious, the conscious experience, but rather unconscious to unconscious experience. That is much more interesting. Unconscious to unconscious communication. Well, that opens up an entirely new world of intuition. I mean, that's a word we, I didn't hear this morning, but really there was this it was there, it was lurking in much of what was said about a kind of intuitive response. I also want to say that the minute you begin to speak about unconscious to unconscious communication, you also involve the world of images and you bypass language. Um, it gives a kind of primacy to other sensory forms of communication. Uh, and he gives the example of music. He says a symphonic score um, uh, in a way illustrates how one practices unconsciously as catching the drift, catching the drift uh, that moves you to something else and something else to you. Um, he also, rather like Novalis, talks about the stress of the unthought known. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I will leave all of that to one side. So, let, let me conclude. Uh, I tried to pick out, uh, my colleagues will forgive me, I was hardly you know, encyclopedic, moments in their papers uh, that it seems to be they share, but also uh, that allowed me perhaps to elaborate a little bit and suggest that there are models um, that uh, should be looked at, should be considered for what I want to call uh, a visual periology. And uh, secondly, maybe that um, this is another person uh, that is, uh, Christopher Borlas might be another person uh, that might be enlisted in thinking about these issues. So I will end with that. <laughs>